0: Hello, everybody. I'm John Allen, the editor of Crux, your one-stop shopping destination for the very best in smart, wired, and independent Catholic journalism. You can find us online at cruxnow.com. Also the host of this show, Last Week in the Church. And as I am wont to say, this is the show where we raid the fridge. Journalistically speaking, we bring out our Tupperware that has kind of like day-old stories in it. But we sprinkle some spices and some sauce on them, heat them up, and make them piping hot and delicious. Here's what we've got for you this week. First, the Pope pulls the plug. Pope Francis postpones his July 2nd to the 7th trip to the Democratic Republic of Congo in South Sudan, fueling speculation about papal health. We will break all that down for you. Then, back to the future. Two years ago, the Vatican to great fanfare announces a new HR office. Then, the next day, they cancel it. Now, it's back on. We'll explain why this might be the real revolution at the heart of the Francis Reform. Then, putting your money where your mouth is, Pope Francis creates a Committee on Investments to oversee the ethical nature of where the Holy See is investing its money, as well as to take a look at its profitability, then stay the course. Key witness in the Vatican's trial of the century says the Vatican just hadn't lost its nerve on that infamous London investment. It would have actually made a lot of money. We'll try to assess what that means for the prosecution. And then finally, an altar boy makes good. Why a municipal election in Italy may actually be a political parable for our times. That's what we've got for you this week. So please stick around. All right. Well, listen, happy Tuesday, everybody. Happy Tuesday, June 14th. This week we have the feast of. Corpus Domini, right, and always a great moment for the Catholic Church. The traditional procession here in Rome that was annulled the last couple of years because of the COVID pandemic is back on, it was anticipated that Pope Francis would participate in that procession. But now it is widely expected that that's not going to be the case. And this, of course, in the wake of the Vatican announcing last week that the Pope's scheduled July 2nd to the 7th trip to the Democratic Republic of Congo and to South Sudan, both places the Pope has said publicly for a long time that he wants to go. That trip has been postponed indefinitely because of the Pope's ongoing health issues. Now, those health issues have to do with osteoarthritis in his right knee which has made mobility very difficult for the pope and has sort of constrained him to use a wheelchair in most of his public appearances recently. Now, the fact that the pope has called off a trip right before it was supposed to happen, like, you should know, that like preparations for this trip were well underway. In fact, journalists who were going to be traveling with the Pope, including my wife, by the way, were busily trying to get their yellow fever inoculations and you know make preparations, and then out of a clear blue sky it's announced this isn't gonna happen. Now, this just doesn't happen very much. Popes generally do not schedule trips and commit to them. And then set the machinery in motion to prepare for those trips, only to pull out at the last moment. It's not quite unprecedented, but it's very unusual. And so the fact that this has happened has fueled another cycle of speculation about the Pope's health. Now, we've already talked on this program about some of that speculation. We've talked before about those who believe that after the Pope's colon surgery last summer, there was some kind of Undisclosed serious condition that, you know, may jeopardize his health. More recently, we have talked about how the fact that he has announced a trip to L'Aquila in central Italy in late August, where he will be visiting the tomb of Pope Celestine V, the last pope to voluntarily resign the papacy before Benedict XVI, has fueled speculation that maybe he's getting ready to step down. Obviously, the fact that he has pulled the plug on this trip to Africa has exacerbated all of that. But, you know, before we get too carried away, let's just make a couple of basic points. First, at least according to the Vatican, at least according to official statements, the problem the Pope is experiencing right now is a problem in the knee, which is painful And limits his ability to move around, but it is not life-threatening. And according to reports, the real problem here is that Francis just stubbornly doesn't want to have the surgery that most doctors would suggest is the appropriate remedy for the situation. Apparently, when he had his colon surgery last summer, he had a bad reaction to the anesthetic. And recently, in a closed-door session with the Italian bishops, but this is Italy, so obviously it leaked out, he told them that he would rather resign than undergo another operation. That was reportedly a joke. But in any event, it indicates the unwillingness of Pope Francis to undergo another surgery. Now, the thing about it is, what medical experts say is that the surgery he needs now on his knee is actually a lot less complicated than the colon surgery he had last summer. It wouldn't even require a general anesthetic. It would just be a local anesthetic and it's basically an outpatient procedure. Now there would be a recovery time but the recovery would be fairly brief. It would be painful while he's doing the physical therapy needed to be able to support himself on his new knee. But it apparently doesn't take very long. To date, Pope Francis has insisted on dealing with this problem basically by applying ice packs to the knee, taking painkiller medicine, having some anti-inflammatory injections, and then also the idea of just basic rest, right? Elevating the knee and not putting too much weight on it too often. While the Vatican claims All of that has resulted in some improvements. It's obviously not improved enough for him to be able to take this trip. We will see if Pope Francis knuckles under and agrees to have the surgery. What are the benchmarks? Well, the benchmark is the Pope has another international trip scheduled for the end of July. He's supposed to go to Canada from the 24th to the 30th of July. And that trip is keenly anticipated because of expectations among indigenous persons in Canada that the Pope is going to deliver an apology for the abuse of indigenous children in church-run indigenous schools and potentially also move the ball on the idea of reparations for the indigenous in addition to the idea of opening the church archives so the exact number and the identities of those indigenous children can be established. The pope clearly wants to make this trip. The open question is whether he will be willing to do the things necessary to make that trip possible. We don't know. All I can tell you is stay tuned. What I can also add, however, is that speculation that the pope is either dying or getting ready to resign is just that speculation. Could be true. I mean, Pope Francis is legendarily a pope of surprises. One never knows. But there is no present indication that either of those two things is in the offing. Let's remember that the pope already has two more trips scheduled for September. He's supposed to be going to Kazakhstan in the middle of the month and then Matera here in southern Italy towards the end of the month. And so whether he would actually quit before those things happened is anyone's guess. So my advice, don't get too carried away by rumors and gossip and speculation. Stick to what we actually know. And what we actually know is the Pope has apologized for the cancellation of this trip, vowed that he intends to make it at some indeterminate future date, which doesn't exactly sound like a pope who's on the brink of walking away. All right, second up this week, back to the future. So in 2020, on a Friday afternoon, the Vatican put out a statement announcing the creation of a new human resources office in the Secretary of State and calling this a key moment in the process of reform launched by Pope Francis. The next day, Saturday, the Vatican put out another statement saying, whoops, this actually isn't a firm thing. This was just an idea that was presented to the Pope. No new office has actually been created and the Pope in due course will decide what to do with it. Now, at the time, we all saw it as one of the most epic flops in the history of Vatican communication. So here we are two years later, And it turns out there actually is a new HR office in the Holy See, or at least the Vatican hasn't retracted it yet. Okay, they announced it last week, and what, four or five days have gone by, and they haven't yet said, no, this isn't actually happening. So for all the world, it seems like there is a new HR office. The relevant difference would be that two years ago, the idea was that HR office was going to be located in the Secretariat of State. Now, it apparently is going to be located in the Secretariat for the Economy, headed by Father Guerrero, a Jesuit and therefore a confrere of Pope Francis. And the mission of this HR office is apparently to deal with the, well, first of all, making sure that in hiring, people with the appropriate professional skills are hired then being responsible for their ongoing professional development, then implementing a merit-based system of pay raises in the Vatican. Now, here's why all this is important. From the outside, it is easy to believe that the personnel problems in the Vatican are, what, political, basically, right? I mean, people love to speculate about conservatives in the vatican like the blue beanies in the vatican right who were trying to obstruct pope francis's liberal agenda or that it has to do with power games right that various cardinals are jockeying for you know who's going to run the biggest empire or whatever and all that is fascinating and it's great dan brown material The real problems in the Vatican, honestly, are far more prosaic. The real problems are, you've got a workforce that, in many cases, like we're talking mid-level management now, right, came into the system 20, 30 years ago. They had the professional skills that were appropriate. Maybe they did. Maybe they didn't. But in any event, they had the skills that were appropriate to the world two or three decades ago. But they haven't really changed in the time since. And further, the Vatican is the most notoriously siloized environment on Earth where you can work in one department of the Vatican and another can be five feet down the hall. And you still have no idea what's going on down there. And in fact, they may be working on something that actually intersects with what you're working on but you have no idea that's happening. And so you're either working at a minimum. You're duplicating resources. Sometimes you're actually working at cross purposes. I mean, I remember very well a time when the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith brought out a document on ecumenism on a Tuesday and the Pontifical Council for, at that time, the Pontifical Council for, dialogue with other Christians brought out another document on a Thursday that directly contradicted one another. And the thing of it is, the people in those two departments had no idea that the other department was working on these documents, right? Now this new HR office is theoretically supposed to solve all of that. It's supposed to promote communication across departmental lines, and it's supposed to prepare people in a future, for a future. In which the Vatican has a reduced workforce, and therefore people have to wear multiple hats. They have to be capable of performing functions from multiple departments, which requires a much broader skill set. Now, we don't yet know if that's gonna work, right? Because that's a pretty ambitious job description. But if it works the way that Father Cabrero described it in an internal memo to the heads of all Vatican departments. If it's serious, and it actually delivers on its promise, this could actually be the most critical reform step that Pope Francis has taken to date. Because the thing of it is, ladies and gentlemen, the Vatican is going broke, okay? It's hemorrhaging money. And a good part of the reason that it's hemorrhaging money is because it is carrying a payroll that is wildly in excess of its resources. They're going to have to trim that payroll. Reality at one point or another will force them to take that step, which means the people who were left are going to have to be nimble. They're going to have to be agile. They're going to have to be smart, and they're going to have to be adept at performing multiple functions. And the only way to achieve a workforce like that is through a serious HR operation dedicated to ongoing professional development. If that's what we're going to get, that, folks, is a genuine revolution. We will see. All right, putting your money where your mouth is. So as regular viewers of this program know, uh, the Vatican has of late been gripped by a scandal involving a $415 $415 million investment in a piece of property in London on which the Vatican is reported to have lost about $200 million. So like they put up $400 million, they lost $200 million, they made no money whatsoever, and in fact absorbed a significant loss. Now in the wake of all that, Pope Francis, as part of the ongoing reform in the Vatican, has created a new Committee on Investments. The committee is to be led by Cardinal Kevin Farrell, Irish born but American by citizenship and experience, former Bishop of Dallas in Texas, who was brought over to the Vatican by Pope Francis to head his Dicastery for Family, Laity, and Life, and who was now also heading this new body. The other four members of this body are all financial professionals from the United States. We have John J. Zona from Boston College, who is the head of their endowment and, in effect, their investment activity. They're all people like that. And the mandate is to ensure, A, the Vatican's investments are consistent with its ethical teaching. And secondly, the Vatican's investments are responsible and reasonably profitable. Now, you know, as with all of these purported reforms, the proof will be in the pudding, right? I spoke to one senior Vatican official this week who told me that he doesn't have any problem with the people who have been named to run this thing, but his question is, and I'm quoting here, are they going to be able to get control of the loot? Because the issue is most, most of the Vatican's investment portfolio at the moment is controlled by the administration of the patrimony of the Apostolic See, (OPSA), which is basically the central bank of the Vatican. It was actually created after the Lateran Pax in 1929 to invest all the money the Vatican got from the new Italian state as compensation for the seizure of the papal states. You know, the open question is whether this new Committee on Investments is actually going to get control of the majority of the Vatican's investment portfolio. If it does, this could also be a revolutionary step. If it does not, well, then it would be much sound and fury signifying nothing. As ever, stay tuned. On the crux site, we'll be covering the destiny (laughs) of this new outfit. All right, fourth this week, stay the course. So, in the Vatican's ongoing trial of the century, it has to do with this, primarily with this London deal, in which 10 different individuals, including, for the very first time, a prince of the church, Italian Cardinal Angelo Becciu, the Pope's former chief of staff, So 10 people have been charged with criminal offenses in connection with the London deal, along with three or four sort of corporate entities, sort of making it a mega-trial, right? This week, the court heard from one of the defendants, an Italian layman and businessman named Raphael Mincione, who is a London-based Italian financier, right? investment expert, broker in transactions, who was brought in by the Vatican on the early stages of this deal. I mean, just to recap, there were two stages of the London deal. First, the Vatican bought kind of a 50% stake in this piece of property in the Chelsea neighborhood of London, a former Herod's warehouse that was supposed to be converted into luxury apartments. Then the Vatican soured on their relationship with Mentioni. They wanted to get rid of him. And so they decided to try to buy, buy him out, basically, by 100% control of this property. They brought in another Italian businessman by the name of Luigi Torzi, who has also been charged in this trial, by the way. And the whole thing ended up in disaster. The Vatican recently sold off this property with a reported loss somewhere in the neighborhood of 150 to $200 million. The great question in all of this is, how the hell do you lose money on buying real estate in London? Like, nobody does that. But the Vatican managed to pull it off. All right, so Mincione testified this week, and basically what he said was that had the Vatican just stayed the course, because well, what he said was, okay, so the Vatican put all this money in, first of all, the Vatican was originally considering buying an oil field in Angola, which had been suggested by a friend of Cardinal Bechu, who at the time was still Archbishop Baciu, the Pope's chief of staff. minchoni was brought in to evaluate that deal. minchoni eventually said, nah, it's too risky, don't do it. And so the powers that be in the Vatican Secretary of State said to him, okay, good advice. We're not going to do Angola, but you keep the money and you figure out like something somewhere else to invest it. So he recommended this property in London. Now, what happened, according to Minjoni, is that this deal was going forward with promise of great return on investment, but then we had Brexit, right? And so there was a hold on all of these investments while the details of Brexit were sorted out, and it was at that point, he said, that the Vatican decided to bail. Now, what Mancuni argued was that had the Vatican just stuck it out, had they had the nerve to wait out the Brexit negotiations, this deal would have gone forward in perfectly fine fashion, and according to his estimates, they would have made something in the neighborhood of 20 to $30 million, instead of losing at the end, 150 to $200 million. You know, who knows? I mean, I'm not a financial expert, but what I can tell you is that Mencioni's testimony builds upon the testimony of earlier witnesses, all of whom have said that it's fine to blame lower-level officials for the way this played out. But the truth of it is, the big-ticket decisions about this deal were made by the higher-ups in the Secretary of State. And it's really sort of in their lap, I, I suppose, to absorb the blame for whatever went wrong. In other words, the argument would be, this isn't really about criminality; it's just about bad judgment. And you know, we'll see what the court makes of all of that. All right. Finally, this week, on ultra boy banks good. So. Most Americans, most people outside of Italy, probably know the city of Verona as the setting for Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. Today, it is a mid-sized city of about 260,000 people. But politically, it's important because for a long time, it it is known as basically a conservative town in northern Italy that has been ruled by the Italian center right for a long time. However, Yesterday, in municipal elections in Italy, the first place finisher in the race for mayor was a guy by the name of Damiano Tomasi, who was the center-left candidate. He got about 40% of the vote, according to exit polls. Now, that's not enough to win. He'll have to face a runoff, almost certainly, with a center-right candidate. And because there were two other center-right candidates, You know, it's entirely possible that when the center-right vote consolidates around one of them, Tomasi may actually lose. We don't know. But in any event, he was like the surprise first-place finisher in this race. And here's what makes all of this interesting. First of all, Tomasi is a former calciatore, That is, he's a former soccer player here in Italy. He actually played for the Roma squadra, when it last won the Italian national championship in the year 2000-2001, I was here for that championship. I remember very well Tomazzi. He is a midfielder, not the flashiest player on the field, but solid. And I remember the coach at the time saying he was the clue that held the team together. Now, the other thing about Tomazzi is that he is a devout Catholic. He is a disciple of Don Lorenzo Milani a famous sort of peace priest here in Italy. Tomazzi ran on a center-left, well, forget center, actually. He ran on a fairly left-leaning platform in Verona. But he rejected the sponsorship of any political party. He wanted to be an independent. He refused to appear at campaign rallies with big left-wing politicians. And frankly, the reason he got 40% of the vote probably isn't because of his platform. It's probably because he has a reputation for honesty and integrity, and people in Verona just don't think he would rob the city blind, which they're accustomed to seeing Italian politicians do. Now, what makes this interesting is that Tomazzi during his playing career, his nickname was the altar boy because he was seen as a devout Catholic and a kind of clean hands guy. What makes it even more interesting is that in 1993, Tomazzi opted out of, he exercised his right of conscientious objection to obligatory military service in Italy. He was actually the first professional soccer player ever to do that. He ended up working at an Italian Catholic TV network called Telepace, which is sort of the EWTN of Italy. And he became like the personal aide, like driver and factotum to Don Guido Todeschini, who was like the mother Angelica of Telepache. He's their most watched personality. And ladies and gentlemen, believe me, he is nobody's idea of a liberal, okay? And yet, when Tomasi became a candidate for mayor in Verona, which, by the way, is where Telepace is based. They're based in Verona. Todeschini gave him what amounts to an endorsement. Todeschini, who is now 86, said of Tomasi, He's a decent young man. He's transparent, and he's committed to others. And he said it would be a source of pride if he were to become the mayor. Now, think about this. Here is a far-left social justice Catholic who is being endorsed by a kind of hard-right, doctrinally orthodox Catholic. And why? It has nothing to do with politics. It's the fact that the guy is decent. He's honest. He's kind. He's generous. He respects the people around him. Those are the basic qualities that make for leadership. And to me, in a terribly polarized time, in which sometimes it seems that ideological divisions are what are going to kill us, the fact that you have a guy who Whatever his ideology may be, can nevertheless inspire admiration across party lines simply because he's a good egg. I don't know. There is something inspiring about that. We will see how he fares when the runoff occurs, but nevertheless, it's a great story. That is our show for this week. Thank you for being with us. We will be here next Tuesday, same bat time, same bat channel. In the meantime, have a fantastic and blessed week, and we will talk to you again soon.